From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. Coming up, what do you want from WMATA? Run on time. Free Wi-Fi, new monthly passes, real-time info. None of it compares to reliable service. Plus, what if we're doing rail wrong? Not just in D.C., but across the country. Forget Metro, think Maglev. It is a class of transport. As we take off, floating on air, episode 15 Metropocalypse starts now. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Transit agencies across the country need to get back to the basics, Wi-Fi, etc. It's not going to make a huge difference. What makes a difference is putting transit in the right places and making that transit useful to many people. We're coming to you from the first workday after Labor Day. Welcome back from summer. And for all of Metro's problems, a look at the traffic jams remind us why we need mass transit. A functioning mass transit system, of course. Safe track surge number eight continues. The work zone in between Franconia Springfield and Van Dorn in northern Virginia. Then September 15th, it's a big one. Safe track returning to the western end of the Orange Line. 42 days of track work. It'll be single tracking during the week and weekend closures. Today is report card day for WMATA. The quarterly vital signs report is out for April through June. So the first month of safe track is covered in there. And there are some bright spots, but still too many late trains. Only 82% of trains were on time, far short of Metro's goal of 91%. And the safe track disruption spilled over into Metro's bus system, leading to more late buses. Some routes experienced increases of travel time of over 30 percent. More people getting on, more people getting off the buses, and there was more traffic congestion on bus routes that were running parallel with disrupted rail lines. More on the Vital Signs Report at WAMU.org. So Metro acknowledges it has a customer service problem. If you can't run the trains on time, you have to be responsive to riders looking for information or refunds, or you have to offer them products they want. Metro is experimenting in this area. Here are a few new initiatives. The Select Pass Monthly Pass, now offering more price points after initial trial run. Here's how Select Pass works. Let's say your typical rush hour commute is $3. You pay for a month's full of round trips, and you get all your off-peak and weekend rides free. You even get a few rush hour rides free, too. Free Wi-Fi is available at six stations as part of a test program for the next five weeks or so. And a new team of social media staffers is responding to complaints and posting updated info on Twitter. So what do you actually want from WMATA? I want the trains to be frequent. I'd like for the trains to be safe and on time. It's a nightmare. They need to, I think they need to be more efficient, you know, be more accommodating to the people. You know, what people really want is a system that is useful and a system that they can rely on. I think to some extent that is fairly common sense, and yet there's a lot that transit agencies haven't done and could do to make service faster and more frequent. Yes, reliable service. That's what you want, of course. That was Atlee Weber, Ben Hickman, Eric Brockman, who were all on the platform at Gallery Place last week. The last voice you heard was Stephen Higashide, a researcher with a New York-based think tank, Transit Center. At one point in Metro's heyday, there was never a question of on-time service and reliability. And in Transit Center's annual survey titled Who's On Board?, they make the case that all that matters is figuring out how to get back to that point as quickly and efficiently as possible.
They've also run the numbers from customer surveys and found that most of us just don't care at all about things like free Wi-Fi or shiny new rail cars. I think what you see with these reliability problems is that the implied promise of frequent and fast service gets eroded. One thing that D.C. could be doing, and which we could be doing in New York as well, is really speeding up bus service. That's something that could be done much more quickly than improvements to rail bus lanes, uh, tap-and-go fare collection on buses. Those could be rolled out fairly quickly uh, and don't cost that much money, but it's sort of a political question, and there's always a need to partner with uh, the local transit, uh, transportation agencies that control streets. I'm glad you brought up bus service. We talk so much about Metro Rail on this podcast, but Metro Bus and the region's bus systems in Arlington, Alexandria, Montgomery County, etc., are seeing declining ridership. You mentioned what should be As far as transit advocates go, easy improvements, bus lanes, off-board payment systems, traffic signal priority, D.C. has almost none of those things. You know, in the past, the D.C. region actually had 60 miles of bus lanes. So you've had, historically, bus priority, and it's been just eroded since then. You know, I think the question is, where's the local political champion who's going to step up for bus lanes? You know, it's not something that Metro can do on its own. Uh, you need leadership from the district government. On your podcast, recently you had Jack Evans on, and he was uh, comparing Metro to places like London and Paris, talking about the comparison when it comes to rail. But when you think about London, that's a place where they really turned around their bus service, and they saw bus ridership increase by 75% over 14 years. Uh, So it shows what can be done when you have the political will to set aside space on the street for buses and when you make boarding faster. So frequent service, on-time service, bus, rail, we get it. Now let's talk about what transit riders don't want. Metro just unveiled the pilot program for free Wi-Fi at a handful of stations for 45 days. Your research finds that transit riders don't care about free Wi-Fi, is that right? Yes, that's right, that's right. And, you know, I don't want to suggest that Wi-Fi is a bad thing for customers. And maybe it's a little bit of a special case when you're talking about underground stations where uh, there may even be a safety rationale. But I think what we see around the country is that transit agencies are often touting Wi-Fi or comfortable seats or all sorts of customer amenities when what really matters is useful service that is fast and frequent. I think what's happening in D.C. is there's a realization that it's going to take quite a bit of time to get the metro system back to where it used to be. And so maybe there's some value in having these customer service improvements for the short term. But in the long term, you know, it's not going to stop attrition of ridership if service doesn't get back to where it should be. You're listening to Stephen Higashide. He's a senior program analyst at Transit Center, which is a research foundation in New York City. Out recently with their annual survey, Who's On Board? What People Want from Their Transit Systems. Talking about customer service on a mass transit system is tricky, isn't it? Because it's not a personalized service. It's not an Uber. It is not an airline. And if the trains run on time, you don't have to worry about some of these other things. But do you find that transit riders do want accurate, real-time information? They want the social media accounts to be responsive, that they want options for payment, different weekly or monthly passes? You know, among the many different sorts of amenities that we ask people about, real-time information does rise pretty close to the top as something that riders value. And I think that's because it does help people 
deal with the disruptions and the uncertainty about when uh, the bus or the train is coming. Your perception of waiting is very different when you know the bus is going to be there in eight minutes compared to uh, you know the situation where you have really no idea when it's coming. Interesting, because Metro is augmenting its social media staffing for Twitter. But for a while, Metro was not very good at this. And the vacuum was filled by amateur transit enthusiasts who have their own Twitter accounts who've been on top of everything. And folks seem to rely on a mix of Twitter accounts, not just the official Metro accounts. Yeah, well, I've always been impressed by how much people care about transit and transportation. You know, you often think of it as sort of a wonky topic, and yet it inspires such passion because it's part of everyone's daily life. What about payment options? Metro tested out a next-generation fair payment system that would have been cloud-based. You can use your smartphone. You can use a smart chip embedded you know, government ID or credit card. Participation was poor. Metro eventually scrapped it. They're going to stick with their 1990 smart trip technology. Are you finding that U.S. Transit riders want these, you know, next generation payment systems? Well, the question is whether a new payment system leads to better service in some way. I mean, if the new payment system allows people to get on board faster, then that's a real benefit. Otherwise, you know, having additional options doesn't seem to really move the needle when it comes to satisfaction. We're speaking with Stephen Higashide. He's a senior program analyst at Transit Center. It's a research foundation in New York City. One of my favorite items in your report is titled, Journalists and Those Who Analyze Transportation Should, number one, question claims that a transit service will draw high ridership because the transit vehicles are attractively painted, bear a catchy new brand, or include upscale amenities. I think that goes to the point where folks just want it to show up, right? Right, right. And, you know, one trend we're taking aim at with that statement is the so-called streetcar renaissance you know, in D.C. and elsewhere, these are services that, you know, appear somewhat sexy, and yet they're running in mixed traffic. So, you know, they get caught up in any little delay. They're not really providing much mobility benefit beyond what a bus can provide. And so in most places, the results have been pretty underwhelming. So to sum up, what does your research find when it comes to the state of our transit systems in the country, not just in Washington or New York. I think what our survey is really saying is that transit agencies across the country need to get back to the basics. These amenities, Wi-Fi, etc., it's not going to make a huge difference. What makes a difference is putting transit in the right places and making that transit useful to many people. Transit Center Stephen Higashide. Thanks for joining us. When we continue on Metro Apocalypse, forget Metro. Our next guest says U.S. rail systems are fundamentally flawed. And that needs to change. Next. Minimal service disruptions, we roll on Metropocalypse. A focus of this podcast is explaining why Metro is struggling. Managerial incompetence, workplace culture, those issues are at the top of the new management team's agenda. But some problems are intractable. 
a 40-year-old system using old technology. No, not the 1970s-era automatic train control system. That's the computer that's supposed to safely space trains and prevent collisions. We're talking about really old technology. Steel wheels on steel rails. The 19th century alive and well. So no matter how well operated the system is, the rails, the fasteners, the ballast will always need a robust and expensive maintenance regime. Everything wears out. So for this final segment, we're going to ask if there is a better way. Over the last decade, Japan, Korea, and China have invested in an entirely different electric rail technology, magnetic levitation trains, or maglevs. The most famous one, a long-distance train in Japan, tops 300 miles an hour. But some cities are using maglev for urban transit systems. Kevin Coates is a consultant who promotes maglev technology in the U.S., and he has at least one ally in Annapolis, Governor Larry Hogan. Last year, Hogan unveiled a proposal to build a line between D.C. and Baltimore, which could complete the trip in just 15 minutes. But Coates says we're lacking the political will to embrace new approaches to old problems. We are ultra-reliant on road systems for moving people around the country. And we're ultra-reliant on airports and airlines to move people around the country. And what's interesting about that is that airlines are really good for transporting people over long distances. And cars are really good for trans... And buses are really good for transporting people over relatively short distances. And by that, I mean, you know, 100, 120 miles and less. Where we're really lacking in this country is mobility for the distances in between, say 100 to 500 or 600 miles. And that's where high-speed ground transportation excels. And that's what you have in Europe, and that's what you have now in China and in Japan and all over the world. Now, I want to get to your experiences across the globe as a consultant. My question about what we're doing wrong in the U.S. when it comes to rail transport. Your position is that steel-on-steel railroads need to be you know, swept into the dustbin of history and that the United States should start pursuing magnetic levitation, maglev transit systems, right? Well, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I don't think we should get rid of all rail, steel wheel on steel rail systems. I think they can be useful. I think for the freight system, it certainly makes sense. But the whole issue of magnetic levitation transport for most people is that they see it as a whiz, bang, gee, wow, super fast technology and and being very expensive. It's not. It is fast, but it's not overly expensive. That's a myth that's been perpetrated by the rail people. But the point is, the real benefit to magnetic levitation train technology, which is a non-contact technology, is the low maintenance element to this. Hey, you always bring that up in our conversations mm-hmm. about metro rail. For as long as metro remains open from now to the end of time, the cost of upkeep is going to be extraordinary. Anybody can Google this. You can go on your computer and Google FRA, Federal Railroad Administration, class of track. And if you do that, you'll find a Wikipedia listing which talks about the different class of track that the FRA identifies. And it's, it's broken down for speeds. And the reason they do that is that the faster trains go, the more maintenance those tracks require. The thing about it is maglev, whether you're going 30 miles an hour or 300 miles an hour, there's no real appreciable difference in the maintenance that's required on the track, something I call for rail a speed maintenance penalty. We're with Kevin Coates, maglev transport consultant who's done work on rail systems all over the world. You mentioned before maglev is not more expensive. They are studying one for real this time in Maryland to build a maglev between Washington and Baltimore. 
estimated cost multi-billions. So how could it not be more expensive? Well, <laughs> well, first of all, we need to clarify something else about maglev. Maglev is not one technology. It is a class of transport. So you have high-speed maglev in Japan, which uses repelling magnets that are actually superconductor repulsion magnets. That's the system they're now looking at between Baltimore and DC. You have the German attraction magnet system, which has been up and running in Shanghai since 2003. But commercially, it's been running since, I guess it was April of 2004. So that's now 12 years in commercial operations. Then you have the low-speed system that's been running in Nagoya, Japan, since March of 2005. It's about nine stations and about six miles. I don't remember the exact numbers. Ballpark. Ballpark. But it's been running for years. And and that's nine stations, but that's 60 miles an hour. That's not a prohibitively expensive system. And according to my sources, the German system that is in Shanghai is about half the price of the Japanese system for construction. So there's numbers all over the place. And I think that whatever we do, we need to have an open bid situation that allows these outside vendors. And when I say outside vendors, outside the United States, because there's none in the U.S., no manufacturers in the U.S. Japan wants to loan uh, yeah. Maryland $5 billion, or the, oh, actually the builders. Well, they want to build their system. And, and who can blame them? I mean, you know, if they can get their act together and make this happen and, and do part of the funding, power to them. I think there's plenty of room in the United States for multiple systems. Let's take a step back from maglev, look at high-speed rail in general. In our past conversations, you've rattled off the number of miles of high-speed rail that are being built in other parts of the world, mm -hmm. while the United States is really just getting started on this, right? We haven't even really been getting started. I mean... Well, in Texas and California. Well, let's take California, for instance. I noticed on the class of track, they were talking about 220 mile per hour trains in California. You know, that's what they're espousing. Well, I happen to be on a train from Shanghai to Hangzhou, which is south of Shanghai, at the time when the train was running at 220 miles per hour. And I filmed that out the window. And at the time, I commented, it won't be long now before the Chinese will slow these trains down once they get the maintenance bill. Well, the following summer, this was in October of 2010, the following summer, there was an unfortunate accident uh, on a viaduct between Wenzhou and Hangzhou. There was a crash, people died, and they slowed all the trains down to 150 miles an hour. And then they did a safety check, reviewed all of their practices, and then they brought the speed back up to 185. And that's where it is today, to my knowledge. But they're not back to 220. So and the moral of the story is we shouldn't count on U.S. high-speed rail hitting 220? Well, here's the thing. It's a stretch. It, there are a lot of forces at work here. You know, there's a lot of pounding of the rails, a lot of pounding of the wheels, if anybody goes to my website, which is, uh, can I mention yeah, it? Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> coatsconsult.com. Let people make up their own minds. What yeah, well, the first video on my video tab is a video from NHK television showing all of the maintenance that is required to keep the high-speed trains in Japan running. And this is steel-on-steel high-speed It's steel-on-steel. Steel. And, and it's no accident that the Japanese decided to build their newest Shinkansen system from Tokyo to Nagoya using superconductor maglev technology, which is 80% in tunnels, by the way, and it goes over 300 miles an hour. Will that ever happen in our country? Don't know. We have to come up with the political will. People have to get their act together because at some point, you know, airplanes are basically flying fuel tanks. They're carrying their own fuel loads. Cars do the same thing, but electric trains is what we're talking about here. It's electric transportation. They're not carrying their own fuel loads, and they're more efficient, and they're safer. 
and they also carry people from downtown to downtown, and they take up very little space as far as footprint on the landscape. So they're not taking, you know, 12 lanes of highway out in California, still don't transport as many people as two tracks of a high-speed train. Kevin Coates is with us on the Metropocalypse podcast. He is a maglev, magnetic levitation, transport consultant. So if you were consulting for Metro Rail, mm. what would you tell them to do? Um, they can't just overhaul the current system and maglev it. Well, you know, that's a good question. And, and I thought about this uh, on my trips going out to Dallas Airport when they were constructing... Phase two the, of the Silver Line. Well, actually, phase one, when they were building phase no, one of the Silver okay. Line but also phase two. But back in 2004, I wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post about how they could have built maglev out there. And it would have been the way to go because if you're bridging long distances, and Dulles to downtown DC is not a hop, skip, and a jump. It's a long way out there. So my question in my op-ed piece in 2004 was, why would you build a subway line out to Dulles? Because if people want to get from Dulles Airport to downtown DC, it's going to take them an hour and a half on the subway with all the stops. You're basically a 60-mile, 55-mile-an-hour train system. You'd need a high-speed connector to get people from the airport in 10 to 15 minutes. Then people would use it. Your initial point that maglev is not some science fiction, futuristic, impractical technology, that it is something we can do in the United States, hasn't caught on. Maryland is looking at it again. Is this the last best chance for maglev in the U.S., the starter line, Washington to Baltimore? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm I'm involved with something else that I can't talk about right now. <laughs> then <laughs> don't bring it up. But it's not, uh, it's not high speed. But let me just point out that this year... But maglev doesn't have to be high speed, It right? doesn't have to be high speed. Uh, just this year, in February, the, the Koreans designed and built their own system, tested it in a town south of Seoul called Daejeon. And you can get you can fly into Seoul and you can get on this thing and ride it. And it's it doesn't have an operator. It's automatic, like you get on an elevator. You don't think about it. It just takes you where you need to go. They're also building one in Beijing called the S1 line. And then, like I said, there's also the one in Nagoya has been running for a long time. So there are multiple low-speed maglevs in Korea, China, mm-hmm. and Japan. Japan. That's correct. So it may cost billions to build a maglev system, maglev transport system, because of the tunneling. But I think all infrastructure projects in our country do cost billions. The benefit is the life cycle costs, that there are lower maintenance oh, yeah. costs. Is that true? Yeah, well, yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because here's the thing. If, if you're looking at technologies, you know, people say, well, this technology is, you know, pie in the sky or this technology is, you know, antiquated. The reality is that the infrastructure, uh, the cost of the infrastructure, gaining the right-of-way, building the infrastructure to, for the, whatever the technology is, you know, that's civil engineering. That, those are civil structures, and you're talking about 80% of the cost approximately, depending upon the system and how many stations you have. That's where the real cost is. That's, it, that's American jobs. It doesn't matter whether it's an imported technology or not. You still have to build the guideway regardless. You have to build the guideways, and this is the other thing. I've mentioned to you before that people hear that China now has all of a sudden 10,000 miles of high-speed rail, and they're like, whoa, that's easy to do in a communist country, and blah, blah, blah. Well, (laughs) that reveals to me a tremendous ignorance of what happened, because, well, what they did was they figured out ways to modularize the components for the infrastructure. So they prefab all of the beams that went up in the sky and are sitting on support columns, in some cases very high, 70 meters high or more. 
they prefab the support columns. They had forms, they poured the concrete in, and then they moved down the line and they built all of the support columns. So it sped up construction. So they figured out a way to mass produce the components quickly and figured out a way to install them quickly. So if you think about it, by speeding up the manufacturing and speeding up the construction process, which you can do when you have a large infrastructure project on a national scale, they were able to build 10,000 miles in 10 years, that's 1,000 miles a year. We have a hard time building 100 miles. Kevin Coates is with us on the Metropocalypse podcast. He is a maglev transport consultant. Let's wrap up our conversation with, you know, back to the reality here in the U.S. Is your argument that each and every new rail system we build, whether it's high speed or another silver line out to Dulles Airport, that if it's steel on steel, old technology, we are dooming ourselves to decades of high cost maintenance if we even keep up on the maintenance. We know that Metrorail's problem is that there was deferred maintenance. Well, there's always maintenance. Even with a maglev system, there's maintenance. But it's it's a matter of degrees. And I read an interesting book a couple of years ago about how the American road system was developed. And there was a movement in the in the teens called the Good Roads Movement. And it was an effort to get the government to start building roads so people could drive their new cars. And this is a time when there was no highway system really west of uh, Pittsburgh. The thought at the time was if we start building roads, that's going to doom us for maintenance forever to maintain these roads. In a way, that's, and, that's happened and in that's, a way. I saw that driving down Connecticut Avenue today where, you know, they're putting in new curbs. There's, you know, roads are being paved. There's, well, the beltway is, every, needs to be Everything rebuilt. needs maintenance. But if you've got a system where there's no direct impact on the infrastructure, I mean, there is impact, but it's dispersed. If you have a maglev that's riding over a guideway, the weight of the maglev, let's say 50 tons for each vehicle, three vehicles, that's 150 tons, that's dispersed over the entire, evenly dispersed over the entire length of the, of the vehicle. There's no direct pounding. There, there are forces, and things do have to be adjusted from time to time, and batteries have to be replaced or whatever. But it's not anywhere near the scale of what you're dealing with with rail systems. Kevin Coates is a maglev transport consultant, and I would love to ride that maglev in Japan or China. In Maryland, the state continues to study possible routes between Baltimore and D.C. If approved, such a line could cost $10 billion in several years to build. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney with Joe Warminski and John Ogolnik. Andy McDaniel is our director of content. This episode, you heard music by Judah, Rootbug, and Fat Neil. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review on iTunes or mark interesting on NPR One or whichever podcaster you use. It may not make the trains run on time, but it'll help us reach new ears of more frustrated commuters. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro.